0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Ruben Flores, an associate professor of American studies at the University of Kansas. His book, Backroads Pragmatist, Mexico's Melting Pot and Civil Rights in the United States, published by the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Ruben Flores, an Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Kansas. His book, Backroads Pragmatist, Mexico's Melting Pot and Civil Rights in the United States, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the winner of the 2015 Book Award of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Flores recasts the long U.S. Civil Rights Movement by framing it within the exchange of ideas between Mexican and U.S. pragmatists. In a thoroughly researched transnational history, it demonstrates how post-revolutionary Mexican reformers adopted John Dewey's pragmatism and Franz Boas' cultural relativism in fostering assimilation of diverse people into a pan-ethnic republic. Mexican educators Moises Sanz and Rafael Ramirez both studied under Dewey at Columbia University and were eager to apply his philosophy at home. In turn, U.S. reformers look to Mexico's scientific state as a living laboratory and a model for assimilating Native people and Hispanics of the Southwest and Blacks in the South into the beloved community. American educator George I. Sanchez, the psychologist Lloyd Tireman, and the anthropologist Ralph L. Beals applied what they learned from Mexico's three-tier rural education program, Administrative Structure, and the concept of the Mexican melting pot to post-war school desegregation and civil rights battles in the US. As radical liberals, they believe in the power of government and education embodied in Mexico as effective in fostering cross-ethnic cooperation and a common vision. Flores has skillfully demonstrated how backroads intellectuals with a mutual desire for national unity and the preservation of local differences along with a pragmatic belief in the connection between thought and action, cross-borders, and fueled civil rights gains in the United States. Here's my conversation with Ruben Flores. Now let me introduce you to the author, Ruben Flores. I have the pleasure of having Ruben here with me. Uh, You just just received the 2015 award from the Society of U.S. Intellectual History for the best book of the year. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with your audience, and uh, it's a great thrill to get the award.
0: Wow. I'm very excited for you. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience right now, and I love the boldness of your book. You have moved across borders and placed U.S. civil rights within a frame of, me- of the Mexican Nation Building Project, and I think it's very innovative and a creative book. But before we get into the book, tell me a little about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Backroad Pragmatists.
1: Well, my name is, uh, is Ruben Flores. Uh, I uh, am from El Paso, Texas. Uh, I was raised on the Ciudad Juarez-El Paso border all my life. Uh, I went to high school there and went to Princeton uh, when I graduated. Um, I spent uh, four years in the history department at Princeton. And, uh, I had a fabulous undergraduate teacher. Uh, her name was Suzanne Marchand. And she was a, a European and intellectual historian. Uh, and it was through Suzanne and the exploration of some of the great works of European thought um that I discovered my love uh, for history beyond just the B.A. Um, my mom had been a, a little ill, and so um, uh, a lot. Um, I went back home uh, as an undergraduate uh, once I got my degree and spent five years working at El Paso before I decided to go to graduate school. But it was in that five-year period where I really thought heavily about graduate school as a career, becoming a professor, um, and uh, working with books as uh, an everyday part of my life. Um, my wife is, uh, uh, the one who convinced me eventually to apply to UC Berkeley and the history program there. Uh, she said, you know, if you don't get back into the library and write, you're never going to be happy. I had met her, uh, in that interim period when I was uh, back home. I went to Berkeley because, um, it had a, a very, uh, strong emphasis on both, um, Latin America and the United States as fields of, of history uh, a very rich tradition of doing latin american history including um Woodrow bora for example uh and uh, the mentors uh that were in the department were were people who uh, focused on the one hand the social history of latin america and then on the other hand on the intellectual history of the united states for me those two fields blend organically because of my life in el paso and the question is um became um how do i begin unpacking and thinking analytically about these streams of life and thought that are so important to my formation as, as an individual uh, living on the border. Um, I got to back road pragmatists when I discovered um, that the social scientists who are responsible for the creation of, of the major legal cases uh, in the American West have all studied in the Republic of Mexico after the revolution. And that's something that made absolutely no sense to me. The Civil Rights Movement um, had been constructed as a domestic movement. That is, a movement in California, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. And I had never read an account of individuals studying in Mexico before coming back and becoming politically active in the United States in the 1940s and 1950s. And the question that I had to answer in the dissertation is, why were... um, United States intellectuals from the West so interested in what was happening in the Republic of Mexico in the 30s, and why did they put that work uh, to use politically in the civil rights cases? It wasn't just that they were enunciating the philosophies that the Republic of Mexico had created, it was also that they were institutionalizing the systems that Mexico had created after the revolution, but doing so on this side of the border in the United States.
0: Well, what is your the main argument of your book, and what what is the what is the, the problem you're trying to solve? Is is it just I know you had a personal question that you just brought out, but what what is the historical uh, problem? So the problem is um, how
1: do we organize um, our society uh, in a manner that allows ethnic difference um, to survive to remain culturally vibrant? Um, at the same time that we are trying to create in both the United States and Mexico a, a single political unity called a nation, if you think about the United States, clearly we have the immigrant schemes from Europe. Clearly, we have um, the tradition of slavery. We have Indigenous America, and one of the big questions in American history has always been: How do we unify all these the varieties of people? under a single nation? Is that a utopian dream? Is it a possibility? Uh, I think uh, as as long as we have uh, been a civilization, this has been one of the primary questions uh, that is foremost um, in intellectual thought, in in political practice. Um, I use the metaphor of the melting pot to talk about uh, this this very question. Um, The Republic of Mexico has uh, an analogous question, uh, precisely because... Um, of the the Spanish influence in the Republic, precisely because indigenous America is such a heavy presence in Mexico, uh, and you really have to fragment indigenous America in Mexico into its many different types. It's not a single unit, but it's many different, distinctive families of
0: peoples. Of course, uh, many people in the United States think of Mexico as this monolithic, uh, ethnic nation, and it's a as your book clearly shows, it is just probably hundreds of different ethnic and linguistic groups and, and villages and all, all over Mexico. It's not one thing.
1: No, this is absolutely true, and it is one of the things that uh, many people in the United States do not understand about the Republic of Mexico. It is ethnically heterogeneous. And so, for example, uh, there are the Maya people of Yucatan, uh, about three million of them that are still present uh, in the states of Chiapas and Quintana Roo. Um, the Nahua people, who we know as as the Aztecs, are still a vibrant ethnic group that live in the vicinity of Mexico City, the states of Morelos, the state of Mexico uh, in Puebla. But if you go up north, you have the Jaramuri people in the state of Chihuahua, in Jalisco, there are the Huichol, um, there are the Otomi. Um, uh, there are the Yaqui, um, and all of these groups of people lived separate uh, existences from one another, have completely different cultural structures, um, were friendly at, at times past with one another, but also went to war against each other at times in the past. And so one cannot speak of, of, of an indigenous uh, homogeneity in Mexico at all. Now, you add to that the European element, right? the, the, the presence uh of, of the spanish who come um in the 15th and 16th centuries um and you also need to add um slaves who came from africa uh and are to this day especially prominent in the states of Guerrero and Oaxaca um the other thing to notice about the republic of mexico um is, is that the land base um is varies uh, greatly uh very deep canyons um huge mountainscapes uh, on both the east uh, and, and uh, the western sides of the country, also the south. And this is important politically because it has meant that territorially, without heavy infrastructure investment, people have been able to uh, live lives separately from one another into the 20th and 21st centuries to an extent that is not possible in the United States. And so, for example, you still have very strong communities of Maya with uh, political systems, uh, with spiritual systems uh, that are vibrant and rich. And unless you see them working on the ground, you really can't fathom how strong they remain to this day.
0: Now, what is the situation? What is the uh, the national situation in post-revolutionary Mexico? Uh, Talk a little bit about the revolution. What kind of ideas it, it brought and how those ideas were attempted to be worked out.
1: The primary question in post-revolutionary Mexico um, was how to unite the nation um, as a single uh, constituency constituency of citizens um, that was able to confront the militaristic power of the United States. Um, It was right after the Spanish-American War. Uh, it's the turn of the century and, uh, Mexico goes to war starting in 1911. Um, the political documents are created in 1910. A year later, you have mobilization of armies. Um, and, and then you, you have unrest throughout the countryside that over the next 10 years, um, at various moments, um, congeal, uh, into, uh, movements against the federal state. The entire state is destroyed uh, throughout that 10 year period. And so when we reach the end of the revolution in 1920, um, there is a necessity to institutionalize a new federal government. Um, and the question for the government is, um, how do we organize a constitution, um, that can, uh, encapsulate, that manifests, um, the creation of single citizen bloc out of so many different ethnic groups. Two, that can control the resources of of the country and put the resources to work on behalf of the citizens. Uh, Here we're talking about petroleum, for example, uh, which had been owned by the Rockefeller family uh, until the revolution. and was expropriated finally from the Rockefellers in the late 1930s. Um, But how do you institutionalize the use of petroleum reserves to create a public school system, um, to create a military um, to create a social welfare net, uh, that can redistribute resources internally for the benefit of the people of the country. One thing also to know about the Republic of Mexico is that poverty was at very high rates coming out of the revolution. Um, I have read estimates of 95% of the people uh, in Mexico in 1910 living in poverty. Uh, and, and so what we we're talking about is economically sort of at, at the level of political economy. Um, vast inequality throughout the country. Uh, and, and so the question of how to redistribute the resources for the benefit of people was a very practical concern. Um, at the very moment that Mexico was being uh, challenged militaristically by the United States, you have a, a global power that has expanded into Asia, into Latin America via the Spanish-American War. It's very clear that America is on its way to become a superpower. It's challenging France and Germany and England. And here's a Republic of Mexico on the doorstep of the United States. Um, and Mexico needs to respond. How do we recreate our society in a way that unites our people and confronts the United States at the same time?
0: So Mexico, the post-revolutionary Mexico had a dual problem. One is how do you unite all these different ethnic groups? Hundreds of them, and probably a lot of them didn't even speak Spanish. Is that true?
1: That's absolutely true. Uh, and so, the so you've got
0: multilingual society. society. is not just multicultural, ethnic groups.
1: Absolutely. And so this raises questions of epistemology, for example. It raises questions of spiritualism. It raises questions of how one communicates across the cultural barriers that are part of the universe in which humanists operate.
0: So, so Mexican, the, the new Mexican Republic has this problem of trying to unite all these different groups and also distribute resources. And I, I thought that the way you laid out in your book, the, the kind of the plan, there was a strategy, and Jose Vas- Vasconcelos was very involved in this uh, strategy of how we're going to do this. And education was key.
1: That's right. A- a- education uh, was considered. Um, the primary platform for uniting, for creating a unified Mexico out of its heterogeneity. Vasconcelos, uh, is uh, one of the towering intellectuals, uh, in 20th century Mexico. He would eventually run, uh, for the presidency. Uh, but he, he had, uh, uh, been a follower of, of Francisco Madero, uh, the insurgent intellectual who overthrew Porfirio Diaz in 1910. Um Vasconcelos became uh the minister of public education uh in 1921 uh, after the revolution uh, had ended uh and busconcelos uh is is credited with creating the institutional infrastructure within the ministry of public education um uh that began the practical tangible process of unifying all the various ethnic groups into a single uh, constituency of citizens how did he do that um, he took uh, public school teachers, school teachers that belonged to the federal state and were paid by the government, and he sent them from Mexico City um, into the rural areas of the nation. Um, and, and the purpose was uh, to bring the Spanish language into the indigenous areas of the country. It was um, to work with local villagers to create public schools uh, throughout the provinces of Mexico, all of the states of the republic. Um, It was to begin to measure social indicators uh, of life throughout rural Mexico. And so, for example, there were ethnographers that would go to Jalisco or to Chihuahua or to Oaxaca, uh, and they would write about the everyday lives of the citizens of the republic. Uh, And the the purpose was uh, to use science uh, to harness social science, Um, for the purpose of of creating a single constituency of citizens. Um, I think my favorite question, uh, and still an open one uh, in the historiography of Mexico, is what did that single constituency look like at the end of the road? Had has been able to create the utopia that he imagined for unified country, um, did that necessarily mean the erasure of ethnic identity? for all of the various families of of indigenous Americans that were in the Republic? Um, uh, Did it mean the imposition of a cultural structure uh, uh, imported from Europe onto indigenous Americans? Did it mean vice versa, the the movement of indigenous characteristics of life, one can think of religion, for example, uh, or food or political systems, uh, as, uh, the predominant ethic for organizing society, um, as against, uh, the systems of European colonizers that had historically, uh, had power in Mexico. Um, these questions, uh, of the utopia are, are still open questions. Um, and I, I, I argue in the book that there were a spectrum of possibilities that intellectuals in Mexico fought over in the early 1920s and then in the 1930s as they were institutionalizing uh, the the Ministry of Education.
0: Now, there was, in this uh, Mexican uh, plan to sort of unify the nation, you had the three-tiered rural education program. Uh, You have an administrative structure that's being built, which is very important to try to Manage this huge country with all these groups, and you have also the concept—the concept of the melting pot, the Mexican melting pot—which I'd never heard of. The concept of the Mexican melting pot. What is that exactly, and how is it conceptualized? The
1: the we use the the term melting pot here in the United States, and and we tend to to fall back on uh, the the metaphor of of the laboratory to uh, think of. Of a chemist who is blending together all the synthetic chemicals or ores into uh, a single unit. Um, in Mexico uses the, the word, uh, uh, soul, uh crisol, uh, um, so C-R-I-S-O-L. and, and a crisol is, is, a, a, it, it's a small vessel in which ore or, uh, or chemicals uh, get blended together. Um, and one can think of the vessel sitting on, on a, a laboratory table uh, and think of uh, the, the chemist, the physical scientist, working uh, his knowledge on it in order to blend it into a, a, a single unit. Um, the, the, the grisol as the metaphor for unification comes up very prominently in the 1920s, in the 1930s, and in the 1940s, um, among Mexican philosophers, among sociologists, uh, and among uh, the, the functionaries of the Ministry of Public Education. Um, you also have other metaphors. Um, sometimes they, they speak about uh, a, a, a tapestry, uh, and so they're thinking of Mexico as a cloth. Um, and, and the question is, how do we weave all of the, vi- the, the various fibers of the nation into uh, a single uh, uniform that represents the citizenry of the country from here on out. But you can see, even in the metaphor of, 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 of weaving and the cloth, the necessity of retaining the constituent elements in order to create the single piece of clothing that represents uh, the country. Um, there are others who, who use musical metaphors, and so they would talk about uh, a symphony, for example, and When I first read uh, the work of Moises Sainz, one of the other intellectuals who uh, was involved in the Nation Building Project, I was struck by the number of times that he spoke about a symphony or an orchestra. This is a metaphor that is used very heavily in the United States in the 19-teens and in the 20s. And it's associated with uh, Jewish-American intellectuals who, uh, in New York, were also thinking about the question of Uh, the dialectic between Jewish ethnicity and American citizenship.
0: Yeah, so basically, right now, this is where the point where you're, there's an analogy, there's a comparison, a a commonality between Mexico and the United States, in that the United States also has issues of ethnic groups and trying to blend them together and trying to build a, a, you know, a democracy, a social democracy that includes everyone. That's right. And how do you do this? That's right. So, uh, but before we go into that, that I have another—I have some other questions about. Um, you didn't really talk about it. I didn't. Uh, well, let's, let's let me go on. How did there were? You're talking about uh, some Mexican uh, intellectuals who went to Colombia and studied with Dewey. Yes. Let's talk about how pragmatism and Dewey's particular vision uh, of education and pragmatism. Gets picked up and gets re- returned to Mexico. Uh,
1: the the use of of Dewey in the book is is absolutely fundamental. Um, one can talk about the politics of the revolution. One can talk about the politics of citizenship uh, and creating the, the nation. Um, and this is at the institutional level. Um, but behind it um, lies uh, theory. Um, these work in dialectic with one another all the time. Um, Dewey um, represents a, a stream of thought. Um, it, it is a stream of, of creative, uh, of, of original philosophical thought that was created in the United States at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and as I explained in the book, um, pragmatism was a critique of Western systems of philosophy. And the critique was that um, systems of philosophy um, had, had not been brought down to the level of institutional politics as it played out every day, uh, in the fabric of social process. Um, and what pragmatism was arguing is that we needed to close the chasm between the systems of thought that we had created as representations of the social world and what was actually happening on the ground in the social world. Um, it was very skeptical of talk about utopias. It was very skeptical about talk about normative possibilities. Um, because it said that unless you tested a real-world experience against those systems of thought, um, that perhaps the systems of thought were actually bankrupt, that they did not um, in any way uh, reflect the movement of social process, the movement of constituencies of people, the conflicts that were everyday conflicts of social process, um, adequately enough. And they didn't speak to how to break out of those conflicts um, in the attempt to create some utopia at some point in the future. Um, Moises signs is a very interesting case. Um, He uh, was a, a Protestant intellectual from the far north of Mexico. His family resided uh, in the city of Monterrey, a very, very wealthy Mexican uh, family. Um, They were uh, partisans of the revolution. Um, And as part of the nation-building project after 1920, they wanted to harness the wealth of their family to create industry in Mexico for the purpose of rebuilding the nation, as an element in the rebuilding of the nation. Simultaneously, however, Moisés uh, Science knew that what needed to happen um, alongside was the creation of, of a vibrant uh, public education system, of a vibrant uh, political system that included a room for public government to redistribute the resources that would be created by industry. We don't know why Moisés Science decided to go uh, to New York to study with Juvie and to study pragmatism. But if you, if you think to yourself, if you just take one step back and, and think um, practically, even theoretically, about what would have made him latch onto the notion of pragmatism, you can understand why Mexican intellectuals would find pragmatism so appealing. It is because the systems of thought that had been created under Porfirio Diaz in the 19th century, uh, social Darwinist thought, um, thought that that very oftentimes revolved around uh, the formalist theology of the upper echelons of of the Catholic Church, uh, thought that that still very oftentimes resided in the metaphysics of German idealism, of French idealism especially, Um, one can begin to understand why Moses thought, uh, signs would think that that thought had very little, uh, to do with what was happening practically on the, on the, on the, on the floor of Mexican society, where there was 95% poverty rate, um, where public government was not working on behalf of people, um, where Mexico was confronted by the imperialism of the United States, where there was no thought being given to, um, the, the kind of, of modernist inflections of modern of, of, of social science uh, that that we associate with Boaz, that we associate with Veblen um, and that took the old social Darwinist thought and, and flipped it on its face and said it's not biology that is responsible for the creation of hierarchy it's institutional process that is um, so for, for Moise science, pragmatism became a wedge. It became an opening. It, it gave him permission to question the old systems of thought that had pervaded Mexico in the 19th century. That's the reason that he wanted to study with Dewey. That's the reason that it became important to him. I can talk about public education in a second, if you want.
0: Know. Yeah, let me uh, let me ask you about Rafael, uh, Ralph Ramirez.
1: Rafael Ramirez um, was uh, a partisan of the nationalist state, uh, and he is known uh, in Mexico... As el maestro de las Americas, the school teacher of the Americas. If Moises Sainz was a high functionary of the Secretary of Public Education beginning in 1926, if he represented a theoretician who had taken pragmatism and tried to blend it with the everyday structures of social process in Mexico, Rafael Ramirez um, was, was the engineer. He was the technologist who put the ideas of pragmatism uh, to work in the Mexican countryside. Uh, It was he who had the heavy labor of translating pragmatism, as Dewey had formulated it in his books, as Moises Sainz was importing it into the agencies of the Mexican state. It was Ramirez who had to find a way to convince the school teachers to go into the rural areas of the nation and convert that theory into pedagogy.
0: What does that look like?
1: Well, initially, it didn't go well. Um, the school teachers realized that, that they had assumed that many of the rural villagers spoke Spanish, and they did not. They spoke Otomi, or they were still speaking in some of the Maya dialects. And they realized that they needed to go back to Mexico City and become bilingual themselves first, or they would never be able um, to even consider the possibility of taking ideas about citizenry and the nation and put them to work in the rural areas of the countryside. Um, these confrontations were sometimes violent. And so uh, the school teachers, uh, the functionaries of, of the state, had to test the political waters in local communities to make sure uh, that villagers throughout the country, wherever it is that they were moving, were actually sympathetic to the political goals of the new government. And one could not take it for granted that that was so. Um, In part, that's because uh, the revolutionary process um, was never uh, a top-down integrated structure. Uh, It had emanated from below, and it had taken place throughout the provinces of the republic. And one could (laughs) never be sure, without very careful treading, how particular political sensibilities would work out in any one community in the Republic. Um, It meant that Rafael Jimenez had to find a way to take the budget of the state and buy the pedagogical instruments that could be put to work in rural areas. If you needed to go into the mountains, if you needed to go into the jungles of Yucatan, how were you going to get those materials out into the new schoolhouses that were being constructed? There were no roads. There were no airplanes. It was a massive undertaking, uh, and these were the everyday realities that, uh, that Rafael Ramirez was confronted with, uh, and that he worked with day to day um, until the moment that he died. It's for this reason that he's considered the maestro de las Americas, uh, the teacher of the Americas, precisely because he had to come down from the level of ideas uh, uh, into the mechanics of institutional process.
0: This was fundamental
1: and pragmatist thought.
0: It seems like a, 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 a just a massive experiment here of trying to apply uh, pragmatic uh, thought and education from Dewey to a and building a nation through this education system. It is. I, I was pretty ast- stunned at the at the effort that uh, that would take.
1: It, it was a huge experiment. Um, very few people could foresee uh, what Mexico would look like 20 years hence, 30 years hence. Um, the political pressure uh, was on Mexico to rebuild its infrastructure and to um, unify itself as a nation precisely because it needed to counter uh, the force of the United States to its north. Um but it was an experiment to the extent that nobody had ever conceptualized the possibility of making Mexico a de facto nation of citizens. Porfirio Diaz had constructed the federal state, um, but with poverty rates in excess of 90%, um, with the use of the rural uh, uh, federales, the rurales, the police force, uh, and the use of violence that Porfirio used to keep people in check in the late 19th century, um, without an infrastructure uh, that could move resources back and forth across the nation, Mexico did not exist as the nation state that it exists at today, and that was going to be, post-revolutionary intellectuals uh, theorized, a necessity to counter the weight of the United States as it was rising to superpower status in the North. Um, It was an experiment. It was an experiment because the state was being built at the same time that the public schools were being established. It was an experiment because here you are importing pragmatism from Columbia University and trying to put it to work in the rural areas of the country. It was an experiment because uh, people were trying to move back the political power of the Catholic Church, and nobody knew how that was going to work out on the ground. Massive experimentation happening all at once in thousands of communities across the republic.
0: Because you're building, and in, a way, in a way, it's also easier because they didn't have any structures, and so you're, having, you're building from scratch instead of trying to go and modify things that were already there That's in right. terms of education.
1: That's right. The only places in the republic that had public schools were the metropolitan areas, and even there, there were not very many. Okay. Uh, and so one had to create the schoolhouse. Uh, for the first time in the history of Mexico, uh, in the provinces, uh, for the first time in, in the 20th century, um, now that isn't necessarily an easy thing to do. You had to convince rural villages that the public school was an institution that was favorable to their communities.
0: Right, and also the the, the, the method of teaching and the way you describe it was trying to use the local knowledge, uh, the everyday knowledge of the people, as a means to teach. To teach,
1: let's go back to Let,
0: that. That method is very interesting to me.
1: Yeah, let's go back to, to Dewey. If it's true um, that the old philosophical systems um, had has separated them uh, from from separated themselves from the everyday texture of local life, um, and if it was true that one could not find some uh, ontological utopia as as the pragmatists thought. Uh, then the only solution for creating a social consensus, the only solution for creating political community, was the texture of everyday life itself, um, and, and and pragmatism uh, depended on the notion of pluralism, of difference, of diversity, um, in part because diversity was an organic fact of social existence. Um, all over North America, you had different communities. Each one brought its own uh, ontology. It brought its own life practices. It brought its own ways of being, of thinking to bear on political systems. And how was one, um, going to judge, right, which of all those vibrant possibilities, um, was the best system for a Republican to making? um that was going to be made out of many, many different kinds of peoples. Well, one ultimately could not decide among them unless one tested them as part of a social consensus. That is, that you had to use local tradition, local custom, because that was the only building block out of which to build a larger structure of 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 unity. Um, it was a very long process in doing and thought. It was a process of, of, of consensus building. It was a process of discussion. It was a process of experimentalism, is what he said. Uh, it was a process of using science, that is, things that were testable in the real world um, as a part of this larger project to create political unity. It was also an open-ended process. One could never arrive at a final solution to a political community, for example, because change was organic to the social world. Technology came came up to the fore at particular moments, for example, and and that rendered transformation in the social structure. There were new ideas that were being born constantly by people, and so you had to make some kind of room for the presence of that sort of change. Um, That meant that you had to be continuously open to the transformation of society as one moved across time.
0: Uh, Ruben, I want to ask you about um, the scientific state, the Mexican scientific state and its relationship to positiv- positivism, which, you know, was very important under deism before that. You know, 19th century Latin America, positivism is, is sort of the philosophy that kind of rules. Did, what is the connection between positivism and pragmatism? And did it prepare uh, Mexican thinkers to uh, to accept or embrace pragmatism in any way?
1: There is a relationship between these two modes of, of scientific thought, and positivism was itself based uh, in English and, and French scientism. Um, the difference is that, um, is that positivism, positivism was a more closed universe uh, to the question of change than was pragmatism. Um, the, the, b- b- positivism existed in mid to late 19th century Mexico um, and it could not account for um, <sighs> it accounted for uh, it, 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 it assumed that biology was the ultimate arbiter Of of social construction. Um, And as such, um, it adopted uh, theories of social Darwinism to explain hierarchy in modern society. Um, Pragmatism was a part of the modernist movement of ideas that also included uh, cultural relativism by Franz Boas, that uh, included uh, Thorsten Veblen's economic thought that included the historicism of uh, Charles Beard. Um, And it placed its emphasis not on biology, but on on institutional structures, right, as the determinants of hierarchy. Um, Positivism became ossified in Mexico because its partisans um, borrowed from schools of thought that placed the emphasis on human nature rather than on institutional process. And so, although there is a relationship between these two modes of thinking, um, pragmatism actually represented uh, a a modern school of thought that overturned positivism in Mexico and elsewhere. It did so in the United States and had done so earlier uh, in Europe. My larger point is that Mexico, after the revolution, is partaking of the same modernist flow of ideas. That, that had taken place in the United States and had taken place in Europe. And so that Mexico, when although we tend to think of it uh, as an anti-U.S. case, as an example of a nation that is antithetical to America, is actually not so. It was partaking of exactly the same schools of thought. Right.
0: Yeah, there's there's a whole movement of ideas that are going throughout Latin America and through into the United States and back again and around and across the Atlantic. That's right. It, so it's not an isolated...
1: That's
0: right. Uh, world. Okay, so you've got uh, signs, and you've got Ramirez. They're trying to apply, they're applying Dewey's philosophy of education to, New, to Mexico. And then Mexico sort of emerges as sort of a laboratory, a living laboratory, which allows an, uh, U.S. intellectuals and thinkers about education to go and observe and see how it works.
1: I think this was...
0: I think this is brilliant it,
1: it, it was it, it, it became uh, the episode that most riveted me. Uh, it's also the episode that took me back to the civil rights movement because which
0: is this connection here, I think is just the, the sweet spot of your book. This is just <laughs> I love it it's the it's the sweet spot.
1: Well thank you for saying so I, I think uh, I think if one steps out of uh, the morality of the civil rights movement. And, and that is central. One cannot think of the civil rights movement without thinking of public ethics and what is right in, in U.S. society. But it has such a weight to it. It is so important in 20th century American thought that one can forget that mechanically, that sociologically, that the civil rights movement is a kind of movement in the direction of a melting pot. That is, we are blending peoples together in public institutions. And we think that that's a good thing. We think that that's a, a virtue. Um, civil rights ha- has uh, a depressing history after the 1960s. Um, and we all live with that. But we can forget that at the level of sociology in the 30s and 40s and 50s, the creation of a single citizen block in the United States was taking place through public institutions. That government had thrown its weight behind that movement um, and that that represented Part of this larger question of the melting pot in American history, why were Americans interested in Mexico? Because Mexico had begun in experimenting with its own melting pot in the 1920s, that is, throwing the weight of the federal state behind uh, uh, the public institution, behind public government, earlier than the United States had done during its civil rights movement. There's a, a, a period of 10 to 15 years in which Mexico was out front in the kind of social scientific questions that would later preoccupy the leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States. And so if one thinks about it, it just kind of makes sense. Mexico is very close to New Mexico. It's very close to Texas, to Arizona, and California. One could travel from San Diego into Tijuana or Baja California or from El Paso through Ciudad Juárez to Ciudad Chihuahua and see the experiments in the public schools unfolding on the ground. It was not a a difficult journey to make. Um, And once you arrive uh, in the province of Mexico, you see the public school teacher trying to harness varieties of communities together uh, in the effort to create a single citizenship block. You see the public school teacher embarked on ideological projects of, of nation building, nationalism, What is the nation? Should it be Spanish? Should it be Otomi? Should it be one of the Mayan dialects? These are all the texture and the fabric of nationalism in the making, and it resonated with the Americans because they had similar questions in the United States.
0: Okay, you've talked about a group of uh, of Americans who went to Mexico to study the reform that was going on in Mexico. Uh, You've got the educator George Sanchez, Psychologist Lloyd Tarman and anthropologist Raphael Beals. Can you talk about these folks and, and others that you mentioned?
1: I, I, these are fascinating people.
0: They were there not. They were just there for a month. They were there for years.
1: Um, they, they spent a great quantities of time in Mexico um, because they discovered that, uh, that social scientific thought uh, could only raise more questions uh, about institutional process. Um, and that studying institutional process required years and years of, of heavy thought and heavy practice. Sanchez was interesting. He was from New Mexico, um, and uh, as a young boy, uh, he spent time with his mother and father working in the mines of Arizona. This is part of similar migration patterns that other historians like Sarah Deutsche have discovered for Mexican immigrants to the United States. Um, as industry is changing, as the economy is changing in the American West, um there is cyclical migration in and out of rural to metropolitan areas or out of rural into industrial zones um, for sanchez um working in in uh uh, uh uh or being with his family in the mining centers of arizona was an introduction to multiculturalism because you had miners that had come from all over the world uh latin america included um it was also an introduction to marxist and socialist thought um patterns of thinking that were different from um, the democratic thought that he had begun to learn in the public schools. Um, this was uh, one of the experiential bases for his interest in the melting pot. Uh, another was his time spent in uh, rural New Mexico. Uh, rural New Mexico was historically Spanish language based, uh, and it traced its history back to the Spanish uh, 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 colonial empire and to the Republic of Mexico rather than to the eastern United States. Um, But the fact was that in the early uh, 19-teens, when Sanchez was was a young child, you could see the flow of American immigrants from the south um, and from the north into Arizona, into California, into New Mexico. And it raised the question of how does one create uh, a single unified community out of so many different constituent elements? Tyerman and Beals, represent um, generations of social scientists who, like Sanchez, are, are interested in very similar questions. Um, Tyerman, um was not from the West, but originally from Iowa. Uh, Iowa, however, uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, was experiencing immigration from um, Northern Europe, uh, from Norway, uh, from Wales, uh, from the Scandinavian countries. Uh, and if you step back and look at there too you have this question of the melting pot. Tyreman's solution was to study educational psychology um, as, as uh, pragmatists and other psychologists were developing it on the east coast of the United States. There was, there was a relationship between psychology and philosophy and, and pragmatism um, be, because they were trying to figure out how the mind worked. Um, how did one take the raw stuff of biology, the brain as, as an organ of biology, and convert that into ideas, the, the flow. How did one put ideas down on paper and what was the relationship to, to biology? Mm-hmm. This is part of the attempt to break out of the utopias of thought that had resided in 19th century idealism. Um, so so Terman's relationship um, to philosophy was through psychology, especially understanding how one acquired language and how, could one, how one translated across linguistic structures. Spanish to English, or Norwegian to Welsh.
0: And that was very important in Mexico, of course, because you got all these different languages, so it's a great place to study how this happens. It's a perfect analog
1: to what was happening in Iowa, and eventually he ends up at the University of New Mexico because that's where he got his, his start as a young psychologist inside uh, the School of Education at the University of New Mexico. Uh, and from New Mexico, he discovered the Republic of Mexico. I don't yet know precisely what it is that tuned him into experimentation um, south of the Rio Grande. I've not found any account in a letter or a book of his in which he describes how he discovered that the Secretary of Public Education was doing the kind of work that it was doing. Um, but once he discovered that it was taking place, um, the analogy um, was, was a perfect match to the kinds of questions that he was asking himself in the United States. Beals um, was an anthropologist from Kansas whose family had gone to uh, California. Um, and uh, he came from um, a, a socialist family. Uh, and so they were very interested in, uh, in the price of industrial processes in the Midwest uh, and then in the West. His father, uh, father and mother in California were very interested in industrial unions. And here's the question of how does one rebalance the economy given the kind of industrial growth that was happening and that was taking place before the New Deal state, when uh, we had uh, unionism, right, as, as a part of the economic fabric of the nation. Um, but the, all of this in California was taking place, of course, in the context of migration. Migration from Mexico into California, and having migration from the south into the Los Angeles Basin, uh, w- which is uh, where um, uh, Beals first went to. Um, his answer uh, was the discovery of cultural, uh, relativism, uh, at the University of California. He was a young writer. He wanted to be a writer rather than an anthropologist. And so these rich series of beautiful short stories that he put together, um, at the age of 15, 16, 17. His brother was Carlton Beals, the radical journalist. And so this strain of writing ran deeply in, in, uh, in his generation, uh, of his family generation, his, his, his brother. Um, it was through the, the study of the art of writing that he discovered anthropology at the University of California. And uh, one of the neat things that you see in the anthropological archives in Washington, D.C., where he donated all of his papers after co- uh, his career as an anthropologist at UCLA is the thought, the thought processes that converted him from a writer into an anthropologist. Um, he realized that he did not know enough about the cultural structure of any particular community in California. And he decided to take anthropology courses in order um, to gain some sense of the rich tapestry of life that any one community uh, represented. And he was going to put that to work in his stories, but he became so fascinated with cultural relativism, which was just washing over the field. This was Franz Boas and modernism and social science at Columbia Radiating outward to the West Coast, um, that he he was enamored for the for the for instantaneously with cultural relativism and what anthropology could tell you about human community. For him, cultural relativism became the way to reimagine social structure, to reimagine it away from the the, the, the heavy price that people were paying for uh, industrialization um, without trade unionism, unionism, without socialism, without Marxism.
0: And so, so he, Mexico is a, a, a fabulous place for an anthropologist with all these different ethnic groups to really study the, these processes.
1: And the relationship to the state and I the relationship to the economy. Right. It's a, it seems
0: just like a natural place to go. Now, they learn a lot. that these These Americans who go down to Mexico and just to kind of observe and study what's going on in Mexico and how it's developing – they come back they, they're bringing back uh, things to their experiences to the United States that's right and and the battles that are going on between school desegregation um, multiple battles in courts and, and in court cases public mobilization yes yeah, so how does it, what talk about what happens with with their knowledge that they gain and that they bring back
1: well let me say first that i i i want to make clear uh, that uh, the civil rights movement was a broad-based movement, and um, that the individuals that I'm studying here uh, who have spent time in Mexico and then brought their ideas back to the United States uh, represented only one of many constituencies that were interested in the civil rights movement. And so, yes, you had labor unrest, and uh, you had labor activists. Uh, Emma Tenayuca, for example, uh, is a famous example of that. Um Uh, Ernesto Galarza is another example of of, of the same thing with the trade units of California. Um, You also had mobilization during the Great Depression and the World War because of all the economic change and people are migrating hither and thither. So there are many different people who begin thinking about the question of civil rights, which essentially means opening up public institutions that have been uh, previously closed to immigrant groups, to black Americans, to the marginalized. It was an accident as I look on the careers of these social scientists that they become interested in civil rights because before the mobilization of the civil rights movement, they had primarily been social scientific actors who were working within universities um, and were busily transforming social scientific thought within specific departments of the university as they were being developed. So, for example, let's take the case of Beals. He was an anthropologist. He was the founder of the Department of Anthropology uh, at UCLA. And initially, when they when they started the department, it was both a sociology and an anthropology department simultaneously. Um, the questions that he brought to cultural relativism um, were worked out in the classrooms, uh, he, as a professor, uh, lecturing to students. Um, that was also the case for Lloyd Tyerman, who was training young graduate students in educational psychology. Very interested in how the brain functions, very interested in how one creates ideas out of the biology of the brain. And he, too, is primarily translating these kinds of ideas for audiences within units of the university. It is the case that because of all of the rapid change in 1930s and 1940s America, that um, that they cannot remain um, immune from all the unrest that is enveloping California, New Mexico, Arizona, the deep south, the urban north. And for them, the fact that they are studying uh, cultural relativism. The fact that they're studying pragmatism means one thing: that there is a necessary relationship between ideas and political action. Um,
0: so there, it, you know, what, what, uh, this reminds me of: they're kind of being forced by circumstance to become not just intellectuals but public intellectuals <laughs> by inter, in, intervening in in the world outside the academy. Uh, absolutely, I, I think the, uh, of, of the people
1: that I study. I, I think Sanchez. To thought of himself as a public intellectual because he found himself having to write to newspapers so often about the conditions of immigrants from Mexico and New Mexico uh, and about um, the Spanish-language communities of New Mexico that trace their history back to the Spanish Empire. So to the extent that he had to do this publicly in front of public school officials, yes, he was a public intellectual from the get-go, Tyerman didn't care at all about being a public intellectual. He was a scientist, and that's where uh, his, his, uh, his thought, that's where his ethic, that's where his, his, his feeling of self was rooted. It was in the laboratory. It was in the classroom. Um, and he was not the kind of individual who felt very comfortable stepping beyond it. Nonetheless, the fact that social science, as he was developing it, was applicable to questions of cultural pluralism, to uh, questions of cultural exchange, these became necessary components of the court battles that are represented in the civil rights cases. One had to ask questions about English and the Spanish language and how those work simultaneously together in the public schools if one was going to create a school system that included both uh, Mexican-American and white American students in the same classrooms. If one set of students came to schools speaking primarily Spanish and another came to school speaking primarily English, then how did that get reconciled by the school itself? This was a necessary question for social scientists to answer. Um, Ralph Beos, because he wanted to be a writer, I, I think always if he didn't think of himself as a public intellectual, knew that his audience was going to be outside of academy. Um, and so I think if you if you look on his life, one of the things that that distinguishes his career is a very deep concern um with the wages of the social process uh, among all of the peoples that he lived with, so immigrants um the industrial labor forces of California, indigenous communities in Mexico, especially the yaqui in which he specialized um, and and so even as he's writing his books for colleagues. Uh, he's very interested in the role that public institutions perform in creating a balance of peoples. Um, I, I should step back and say that had it not been for the kind of social scientific thought, just a few minutes ago we were talking about the relationship between positivism and pragmatism, um, and this is, this is key, modernist thought in social sciences for these individuals gave them the permission that they needed to involve themselves uh, in the work of public institutions. It was experimentation. It was scientism. It was empiricism. It was the testing out of ideas on the ground that mattered in the new modernist social scientific thought. Uh, and, and so for them, uh, there, there was no collision between ideas in universities and the creation of institutions in, in public spaces. Those were necessarily locked together in a dialectical relationship, and they were never afraid um, to try to work out ideas in the realm of the public.
0: Now, the civil rights movement that they were in, ended up getting involved in through different court cases and things like this uh, was not just the south in the southwest, but also it also involved. I think one of these, uh, which one was it that was really involved in the south? In the, uh, with African. George Sanchez. Sanchez, okay. Uh, very much involved in, in African American uh, rights, civil rights there, and what that's going to mean.
1: That's right. Sanchez uh, would later uh, go on in, in uh, the late 1940s and then in the 1950s, uh, in the years that are leading to Brown versus Board of Education, would uh, become an intellectual who integrated himself uh, into the political campaigns of the American Civil Liberties Union and uh, the NAACP, um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, These were two of the principal organizations that were leading the fight for the integration of the public schools uh, for black Americans in the Deep South and uh, in Kansas, uh, which is where uh, uh, the Brown case emanates uh, out of Topeka, Kansas. but Sanchez's segue into the civil rights movement of the 1950s at the level of law um, was predated uh, by the fact that in the 1930s, um, the research money for his trip to Mexico had come from the, the Rosenwald Fund uh, of Chicago. Uh, and this is the same Rosenwald Fund um, created by... Uh, a uh, uh, Julius Rosenwald um who um is known for the creation of private schools throughout the deep south as one answer um uh, to the horrific race relations um the structure of violence of the new south uh, Rosenwald had funded uh private schools throughout the deep south and there's an enormous collection that is housed at, uh, at Fisk University um, that contains the archives of, of this, this enormous campaign to create public schools that would benefit African-American students in the Deep South. It was precisely because Rosenwald was interested in interracial relationships between whites and blacks that they began to look outside of the Deep South for potential models uh, of public education, of private education, to put to work in Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, when um, they learned about New Mexico as a site of experimentation. Here we're talking about, for example, Sanchez, who has come back from UC Berkeley, um, who is interested in interracial relationships in New Mexico. When Rosenwell learned that there were models of interracial thinking and practice taking place in other places in the United States, they turned to Sanchez and he um, became one of their functionaries. Um, Rosenwald, through Sanchez, um, became interested in what was happening in the Republic of Mexico. Uh, and so it was they who gave him the money right, to travel in Mexico for the initial two years that it took to write uh, Revo- uh, Mexico, revolution by education. This is a text uh, that Sanchez wrote in 1936 about the Mexican states. Uh, public education system. Um, It was Rosenwald who sent Sanchez from New Mexico into Louisiana to begin at Grambling University um, to translate Mexico's institutional models um, uh, into the Southern Sea to put those same models to work among African Americans and white Americans in rural Louisiana. What you have, if you just step back, is a triangular relationship that's taking place here in the American West, in the American South, and in Mexico.
0: It's just, it's really great. I really just love this. I, I, you know, you've been, you've been really great today, and you've given me, given our listeners a lot to think about. Maybe they'll go and read the book now because I think it, the book is very interesting. I have another, a final question sure. for you. What are you working on now?
1: Well, I, I, I'm I'm basking right now in the fact that that I completed this book. Um, And and so I'm doing a lot of deep reading. I've become very interested in the migration of women from Mexico into the United States between 1920 uh, and 1950. Um, And here's the structural question that I have that I think may end up um, uh, becoming a book. The the structural question is, um, how did society organized itself in far northern Mexico. Um of course you have the national state is trying to recreate public institutions. Uh, you have the mobilization of resources, but you also have a, a a a huge amount of male death uh because of the revolution. Men were killed in the war. And there are a surplus of women. Um and the women begin to migrate from rural Mexico into the cities. So the city of Pajal, the city of Tijun, um, uh the city of Ciudad Juarez. In many cases, the story turns out to be uh, 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 initially a very sad story of women uh, who have children, um, but of men who have multiple families, right? Uh, and this is because the gender ratios are imbalanced. I'm very interested in the lives of these women as they move northward and as they come into the United States. And I'm trying to find a way to tell that story. When women come into El Paso before moving into San Antonio, um, somehow they harness the fortitude to maintain family structures. Um, and as women migrate into the United States, um, they remarry, very oftentimes with Americans, and they have second families. Um, this is a sociological phenomenon. I can't wrap my head around it completely yet, but it happens in multiple locations. I'd like to do something with that.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Ruben. Congratulations.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, please read the book. I, it holds together pretty tightly, I think. Uh, and I think this. I'm thrilled to get this award. So. Uh,
0: thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at mutebooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.